0: Welcome to Musicians vs. the World, the podcast where we explore aspects of music and musician life that may not have been covered in music school. I am your host, Christine Smith, and our longtime followers of this podcast are going to be very excited to see our guest today. We first met Dr. Milena McLaren in 2022 while talking about neurodiversity in musicians, specifically when it comes to sight reading. And she has graciously agreed to come back to our program to discuss her other passion, Spanish clarinet music. And she's going to tell us about her years-long journey to find some real hidden treasures and share them with the world. Now, as a refresher, Dr. Milena McLaren is the professor of clarinet at Northwestern State University of Louisiana. She received the Bachelor in Music Education and Master of Music degree in Clarinet Performance at the University of New Mexico and a Doctor of Musical Arts degree in Clarinet Performance with a minor in Musicology at the University of North Texas. She has recorded with the University of New Mexico Chamber Orchestra, the University of North Texas Wind Symphony, and has performed in orchestras throughout Mexico and the United Kingdom. As a member of the Trio de Llano, Milena has performed throughout the U.S., Slovakia, the Czech Republic, England, and Spain. She is also a core member of the Rapides Symphony Orchestra and has performed solo and chamber recitals at multiple international clarinet fest conferences. She is an international award-winning researcher and is currently serving as Louisiana State Chair for the International Clarinet Association. So, Milena, thank you so much for
1: being here and coming back to talk with us. Welcome back to Musicians vs. the World. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be back and talk about uh, really what takes up a lot of my time researching still. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just so nice to see you again. Have you had a good year since I last saw you? I have. More productive. You know, I I, I have a hard time just sitting still. So it's been great. And uh, I'm excited about new projects happening and more performances coming up. So thank you. Yeah, it's been really great. Oh, good. Good.
0: So let's dive in to this great research, the Spanish clarinet music. I have to admit, I know very little about Spanish classical music in general. I think Albanese might be the extent of what I know. So, can you tell me what it is that first got you interested in this topic?
1: Absolutely. Well, I was I was the same. I think that's was the extent of what I knew. Maybe add some defia orchestral works to that, and going into my doctoral studies. Um, that was really all, all I knew. And in my first year of study at North Texas with Dr. James Gillespie, he judged a competition, the Dos Edmanas competition in Spain. And as a gift, a thank you gift, they gave him this piece that was out of print and, um, so for clarinet and piano. So he brought it back and came to my lesson. He was telling me about the competition and he said, oh, you know what? You have Spanish blood. Why don't you learn this? Let's see what it sounds like. <laughs> and so and of course he had heard it and he loved it but uh so the minute I started playing it I just absolutely fell in love with this piece Um, so I, it was Miguel Uste and it was Estudio Melodico. And so um, I thought, well, I really have to know more about this composer. So, uh, so, And this was all the way back in 2000, I think, maybe 2001. So I, as we do at that age, I just thought, well, I'll look it up. I'll look up the composer. Surely I'll find all the things I need. <laughs> <laughs> okay, roadblock number one was about to happen. So the only thing I could find was a couple of paragraphs in Pamela Weston's research, which is fantastic, but she had just a couple of paragraphs about him. And it stated in there, it was a brief biography, that he had written over 100 works for clarinet. And I thought, well, this how do we not know about this composer? This is amazing. So that's what started... My journey. So, um, for the next probably five years, um, I finished the dissertation, graduated in 2005. So, I was doing research on this, and I, I, you know, that was the end of my looking in books. There was not much to find. <laughs> there right. were some articles written, and I, I learned quite a bit doing that. But really, what it boiled down to was communicating with living clarinetists in spain who could help me Um, and so with my broken spanish and their very good english and us just communicating i made some amazing friends over there who were so helpful pedro rubio is one of them and carlos casado those two in particular were amazingly helpful the clarinetists of the um, national orchestra of spain were also incredibly helpful Um, and so i gathered information but all of it through email at that point i had not been able to visit spain at that point so now so. did you
0: how did you find these clarinetists these friends?
1: Yeah, that's right. That's the next question. Again, the <laughs> generosity of of people. So asking questions uh Dr. Gillespie is wonderful for so many reasons, and one of those is because he knows everybody. Uh, as the editor of the Clarinet Magazine, he had he just knew who to contact. So he said, "Okay, we've got to find more." So he got me connected through his connections with these two clarinetists, Pedro and Carlos. And it went from there. Uh, Just, you know, first asking questions and then just a friendship that grew with with both of them that have continued to be so helpful to me. So really started through Dr. Gillespie making contacts for me. Wow. Um, So, you know, by the time still my my main question in all of this is where are these 100 works? What else has he written? Right. So you think, oh, I'll just look in the conservatory because that's where Miguel used to taught. Surely they're there. They're there. No, nothing couple little things, but nothing. Then I thought, well, where else could we possibly look? Maybe the family has them. Well, that was much more complicated than I anticipated. They don't, we have now found out. But um, Pedro Rubio had been trying to get an interview with the family. And because of um, there was a divorce and a second marriage for Miguel Yuste and just some family uh, complications. And so uh, he never did get the interview. They weren't really uh, willing to talk with him for whatever reason, and I don't know the details of that, but that n- n- no interview happened. <laughs> so, um, so, but we still <clears throat> were wondering where these one hundred works were. So, in searching some of the Spanish sources, it, Pedro is the one who found it. There was a mistranslation from a 1927 book, where it said that he had published, or pardon me, he had written and arranged over one hundred works, not for clarinet, just over one hundred works. And oh. so there was the, – so what Pamela Weston had likely seen, I don't know for sure, was this mistranslation that they were for clarinet because he was the clarinet professor. He was an amazing clarinetist, considered by many to be one of the fathers of Spanish clarinet playing still there. So a uh, very important figure in clarinet there. <clears throat> so I thought, okay, well, at least we know it wasn't over 100 works. But still the question remains, how many works uh, was it? <laughs> so, right. So um, – Miguel Yuste was also the he co-founded the Madrid Municipal Band, and so uh, it was suggested to me there might be some in the archives there. So that was where I kind of ended the research <clears throat> in two thousand five, still wondering <laughs> the first question that started <laughs> this whole this whole journey. Uh, then, thankfully, by then I had gotten a job, um, so I was teaching here at Northwestern State. Uh, we've got some very generous endowed professorships here. So I thought, well, let me apply for one of those and see if I can get to Spain to get into the archives. So that's what I did. And in 2011, uh, I went over there, did some performing, did some teaching, and most importantly, got into the archives with, with the invitation of Carlos Casado, who wrote me a recommendation and introduced me to the archivist. It was not as simple as just showing up at the door and saying, I'd like to see what's in your archives. It was really um, you know, a vetting process. They needed to make sure I wow. knew... They would. They needed to know why I was there and what I was doing, which uh-huh. I appreciate because these are really valuable uh, resources. So, so I made it there and looked in the archives, and it was um, a treasure trove in many ways. There was a lot of all in manuscript, of course, of his transcriptions, his arrangements, his original works. I did not at that time discover any new clarinet works, but I was able to get some dates and fill in some blanks and actually see. Okay, they did. They did exist here, and I do see that how you could easily say he wrote and arranged over 100 works. Most of them were going to be for the band because they oh, performed every Sunday. And we could talk about the Madrid Municipal Band in a whole other podcast. The history of that <laughs> is fascinating as well. Still exists, still performs in public. This was really the first way that the general public was hearing music concerts. You know, If you couldn't afford a ticket or, or go to the, to the theater to hear the opera or um, you know, the symphony, these were just in the park, you have this huge park in a gazebo. And so you could come and hear these, uh, really? hear the band, which is phenomenal, by the way. This is not, this is an amazing, amazing group. So um, I had the privilege of hearing a rehearsal and was just, I, don't, I can't even put words to it. It was amazing. Just an incredibly talented and amazing group of musicians. So, so really great.
0: That was very generous and Miguel used to start this sort of municipal band so there's music for everybody everybody. and with him being such an amazing clarinetist and composer himself to write music for it yes yeah how generous is that
1: and so I'm so thankful because now we have so many great works and the public can hear them more of the public can hear and could hear his arrangements and others as well so he, he and a friend started it and still going strong today so really um Amazing. His contribution, like I said, we could, I can't really emphasize <laughs> his contribution to Spanish, not just clarinet, but Spanish music history.
0: Yeah. Definitely. And it's in, it's incredible <clears throat> to me that he did so much and we've never really heard about him yeah. over yeah. here
1: in the States. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what kept me going too, is I thought people need to know about this music. This is amazing. Um, I'll share with you later, there's, because of this research and just Uh, Pedro and I got, Pedro Rubio and I were talking so much about it. Anyway, the the short end of that story or the short part of that story is he ended up starting his own publishing company to get some of these works that he was finding as well, different composers, um, published. And so it's thanks to him we have a lot of these works published now and available. Uh, to Mm -hmm. purchase because he was finding things in attics people's attics and places you wouldn't think to look you know after the Spanish Civil War a lot of the materials were either displaced or lost and so um, that was something I had to learn was that it it wasn't like I could just go into a library and everything was there for me I it was you know just the the history of 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 what's happening in a country how much we know this how much it affects what's going on but um But much of that music just got displaced or lost, um, sadly. So to find this again is a real uh, treasure hunt and a real journey, just finding family members and do you know about this? And he was finding pieces in just the strangest places and just really felt like it deserved to be uh, printed and heard again. So I'm so thankful he did that because we have have a really great library of Spanish clarinet repertoire now. Now that we
0: didn't have, what, like 20 years ago? Like 20 years ago, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it just it sounds, sounds like, well, as you're telling a story, it sounds like some sort of movie montage where he's like talking to this person and across the street he goes and talks to this person. They say, I don't
1: know, you may know, go look over there and you may find it. Yeah, exactly. And then <laughs> there on the floor in the attic. Well, what's this? You know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm probably exaggerating slightly, but still, yeah, I think it's just kind of a series of conversations and, um, and just finding things that was unexpected. So So Miguel Usta was also a teacher. Correct. Yeah. And so his, you know, he's important for many reasons. I think the three main ones, like I said, he's considered one of the fathers of clarinet playing in Spain because he taught at the conservatory, at the Madrid uh, Royal Conservatory, starting in 1909. So when he got there, he completely revamped the way that they taught clarinet. It, it was in need of a, of a uh, kind of a redo, not that what came before it was bad by any means. It, it has just become outdated. Uh, it was Antonio okay. Romero was was years before him, not immediately uh, before, but he had really designed that course of study for clarinet. Um, and there's so much great research on Antonio Romero that I'll not talk about today because it'll get me off topic, but um, (laughs) also incredibly important to clarinet Spanish history. Um, So he has redesigned that course. That's still the way that they teach clarinet at the Madrid Conservatory, by the way, is that how Miguel used to restructured it back in 1909. So that's one of the big things.
0: Oh, is it very different from how we learn clarinet in the states?
1: No, it's it's a six-year course of study, and it uses a lot of the same materials that we're familiar with here and mm-hmm. and repertoire. It just kind of outlined which materials and which repertoire and what order you would you would study those in. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so. Uh, But he combined, you know, of course, all the Paris Conservatory test pieces. He combined uh, a lot of the method books that were familiar with Italian, German and French, but also added his own works. So this is what his works were composed for, was for test pieces or audition pieces for the conservatory. So really only, I think, two of them were meant for the stage, but most of them were test works so now i think we've got nine i think that's kind of what we what we have settled at that that is available for clarinet so i I think it's nine is what my count is and i may be off slightly uh with the most current research i'll have to confer with pedro again soon (laughs) but um but that's that and the madrid municipal band are are two of the big things that are important about him that we that we know him for and why he's so important to the spanish Mm -hmm. clarinet history there Now, did you say there were three things that he did? Yes. So the third thing is he performed quite a bit, and he performed in these zarzuela orchestras. And that kind of leads into the characteristics of these pieces. You know, what makes them so interesting? Of course, I was drawn immediately, but every time I perform them, somebody comes up and says, oh, my goodness, what is that? Where can I get more of that? There's something that really speaks to us, I think, in this this music. The melodies just, I mean, I tell my students, they kind of rip your heart out and make you look at it, and then, you know and then cry about it. They're just beautiful, beautiful, hard on your sleeve sort of uh, melodies and, and harmonies. Um, and I think we're fortunate because I think where the history of Miguel Uste, his biography, and the zarzuela intersect is why these pieces do this to us. So maybe I'll kind of break that down a little bit so you can see just briefly. I, I won't turn it too <laughs> much into a history <laughs> lecture. But <laughs> so, so Miguel Yuste was born <clears throat> in Cadiz, Spain, which is on like a, the southwestern coast in the Andalusia region. This was in 1870. And sadly, by the age of eight, he was an orphan. So he was sent to Madrid to the orphanage there, the San Bernardino Orphanage. Now, the fortuitous thing about this is that the orphanage wanted to foster the children's uh, artistic education. And so they started a wind band. So all the kids learned instruments. And Miguel used to learn the clarinet, obviously, Well, he must have had a natural gift for it because by the age of 13, he was studying at the conservatory with the professor there, um, Manuel Gonzalez, who he would later succeed, by the way, as professor in 1909 of that conservatory. So that's what took him to Madrid and got him playing clarinet. By 19 years old, well, actually by 1885, so then he's only 15, he started his performing career. He was first chair with the Royal Corps of Halberdiers, so playing in a wind band. And then by the time he's 19, he was first chair, principal clarinetist in the Teatro Real, which is significant. Wow. I mean, that he first of all, that he rose that quickly. But the reason the Teatro Real is so important now ties us over to the Sarsuela. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the Sarsuela is, um, it's basically a kind of the common man's opera. They're short, they're about an hour to an hour and a half long. They're basically little musical plays that are uh, interspersed spoken dialogue and sung dialogue. And they're meant to just kind of show you life events in, a, in the day of a common person, you know. So things that, you, that people can relate to. There's funny moments, there's sad moments, there's heartbreak, there's drama, you know. Little soap operas, if you will, I guess. <laughs> so, but these started, sarsuela started all the way back in the 1650s. And um, the reason they're called that is that they were uh, performed at the Palacio Real de la Zarzuela for the king and his guests. So that's how they got the name Zarzuela. They were popular, and the popularity fluctuated because the Italian influence was strong in Spain (laughs) for a while. So it would become like, now we're interested in Italian, now we don't want Italian, we want our Spanish national, You know, we want it to sound more like Spain. Now we like Italian again, now we want this. So it kind of fluctuated. But by the... Uh, middle of the 1800s, the zarzuela was incredibly popular. And so this ties into uh, Miguel Yuste at that time, of course, by the 1880s, starting to perform in the Teatro Real and the Pit Orchestra, basically.
0: Okay. Well,
1: by the time we get to there, by the end of the 1800s, the zarzuelas were so popular that there were at least 11 theaters in Madrid that played zarzuelas only regularly. People were going to these. They were very popular. And to have 11 theaters in one city be only performing the sarsuelas to me. Just let me know. Wow. The, okay, these were talk about popular. They were really wow. popular. Like I said before, just they're, they're interspersing dialogue and songs. The songs are traditional songs and dances that were already to familiar familiar to the to the general public. It's almost like a Gilbert and Sullivan thing. Then they become even more more familiar. So people are singing them on the streets, and uh, it's you know you could relate it to like a Gilbert and Sullivan sort of experience there. You know? So this is his frame of reference then for composing, because you think this is back in the 1880s, right? And so by the time he's the professor at the conservatory and composing these works, this is what he's got in his ear. This is his frame of reference are these sarsuelas. He was playing them all the time. So it's it really is the traditional, a lot of these folk music elements, right? So that leads me into, <laughs> I think what really draws us to this music. And, um, when I started studying it and really trying to dissect it and think, why do these melodies just really speak to me so much? What is it about them? And you break it down. It sounds very scientific and almost a little bit too, um, you know, uh, sterile, (laughs) but they work somehow they work together. so. (laughs) So, um, but you, you know, you can find a lot of research on, um, just cause some Spanish folk music characteristics. There's some wonderful resources out there. So if anyone is more interested in this than what I am talking about today, you could certainly find bigger discussions on these. I think my dissertation yeah. is available free on electronic copy. So if anyone just puts me okay. in, uh, there's I'll, I talk a little bit more deeply about this in the dissertation about but, like the like theoretical characteristics and things. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So if anyone really is interested in that. You can certainly find the the resources, mm-hmm. but yeah, um, I'll
0: put links in so people can go down the rabbit hole. Great. Yeah. Like, I
1: probably, I will, because I love that sort of thing. So I'll be reading I'm with it. You. Yeah. It's fascinating to me. So, But yeah. I'm aware not everyone is super fascinated in that element of it. So. Well, and it was interesting to me that all of these pieces I was hearing is just like, gosh, these really just are, I, I can't get over how beautiful they are for me. So, right. um So I, you know, I guess I can boil it down into three little areas that I think you're going to hear in a lot of these works. Um, yes. You know, and I think it's easiest. I love categories and I love threes. So... This is three categories okay. for us today. So <laughs> the rhythmic elements, the melodic elements, and the harmonic elements. I think it's yeah. easy to break them down. And again, these are characteristics just of Spanish folk music in general, but you definitely hear in the Sarsuela music. And then as a result in Miguel Yuste's music, as a result then in a lot of these works for for clarinet by Spanish composers, particularly in the 19th century. So it okay. goes out from there. So the rhythmic elements you hear, one is... Um, of beautiful melodies, of course, but an accent on the penultimate, the second to last syllable or the second to last beat of that phrase. And that just ties to the Spanish language. You know, this is where the the accent naturally falls for the Spanish language. But it's a little different than what we're used to hearing in some other music. So um, and to me, that's kind of the moment that just rips your heart out right there. Sometimes it just lands the harmonies that it lands on is just gorgeous. But it's typically for a lot of those melodies on the second to last beat, rather Hmm. than the peak of the phrase right in the middle or the very end, but that second to last.
0: So is Um, there, do you have an example of Yes,
1: exactly. So there's actually a ton. I think if you listen to even the beginning of the Estudio Melodico, uh, you're Mm going to hear in those opening melodies, it just leans right on on that beat. So that's where you would hear uh, an example of this for sure. The other things that you definitely hear also in that example are um, repetitive rhythmic patterns, like a dance type of rhythm, long, short, just a long, short, short, long, short, short, or something similar, uh, which seems so simple, but it really adds kind of that, that uh, Spanish mm. folk music element to it. So you'll hear that also in that example. Um, a bigger picture that you would, if, if you heard the whole piece or any of these pieces is an alternating two and three, so a binary and ternary meter. Um, so you mm. kind of have to hear a bigger section to hear that. But that's really common, kind of this back and forth from a duple to a triple. Mm.
0: Would meter. they do that, like, from one measure to the next? They'd go
1: one, two, one, two, three, one, two, like that? It's actually a bigger scale. It's more like by section. So you oh, might okay. have a whole section in three, and then it'll switch over to a whole section in two or vice versa. Oh, okay. So, yeah, that, that one is the, is a bigger scale. You'll You'll see it not necessarily within smaller you know but but as a as a macro of the whole piece.
0: So oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay.
1: So those are really common rhythmic elements you'll hear. Um the melodic elements You know, a lot of this relates to what we think of an opera, like this unmeasured melody. So it sounds like a recitative, a dialogue, basically. You get this beautiful Mm -hmm. idea, and then the piano answers, a beautiful idea, the piano answers. So you hear that at the beginning. In particular, the beginning of the Capriccio Pintoresco is a perfect example of that unmeasured and recitative dialogue. You can also hear in that the melodies are aria like, that you could sing them. They're, they're gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And really, any of these pieces, but both the Estudio Melodico and the Capriccio Pintoresco. Just pick any of those melodies that you're hearing. Those themes are very much um, aria like. There's an interval, this is melodic and also harmonic, but I'll mention it here. The interval of an augmented second or a minor third, not mm-hmm. only in the melody, but in the bigger picture as well. So sections will do that sort of movement, the augmented second or minor third. Um, and it gives it that very much that folk, um, element, almost modal, you know, if, if you you could, it's, it's, there's some tonal ambiguity, which I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I think that adds to it is that it's not really a scale you're used to. It kind of is, but, but not really. So it's more about introducing some harmonies that will really, um, are more interesting because they they pull your ear a little differently than you're expecting.
0: Okay, so what mode is it the most similar to? Like well, if you were to describe it,
1: I don't know that you could answer that with one. I think the whole point of just that it's that it's ambiguous. It, it's in fact, ambiguous. I think it's easier. As I was analyzing the works, you could definitely find tonal harmony in it. You can call it a key. This is in D major. This is in G okay. minor. Then we move to here. And I think the modal part comes in more with how he's using chromaticism to okay. kind of pull us a little bit away from the key, but not really. It comes back to a tonal reference almost oh, every okay. time. And I think that goes, dates back to like the, the Roman and liturgical influences way, way back at the beginning, you know, from the folk music elements that kind of bring in more of a modal um, spirit <laughs> and feel than a very specific, we're using this mode here. And so, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and this just the chromaticism, and in particular, that use of that augmented second or minor third uh, in, in sometimes unexpected places that mm. that I think kind of make us wonder wait, is it in that key? And then you think, and then it goes a little further, and you think, oh, yeah, okay, it's still in that key. <laughs>
0: yeah. So that's very <clears throat> characteristic that you said the 1880s. It seems like mm-hmm. other European styles yes. were kind of going towards that as well at around that yeah. time. So,
1: yeah, I agree with you for sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: But it had that folk element in there that made it like, uniquely Spanish.
1: Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very um, cool. And then you get, you know, if you want to kind of turn the microscope in a little bit, you'll find moments of these kind of like falling thirds. But really, I think it's easier to or better to characterize it as a as a terraced downward motion. Bia, 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 be 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 bia, something like that, mm. mm-hmm. but not literally thirds. Again, this kind of ambiguity. Thirds, eh, not quite. OK, now it's thirds. Oh, wait a minute. Now it's not. But it's this terraced <laughs> downward motion. And then when the melody returns, as it often does in most of these works, it's heavily ornamented, almost sounding improvised. Mm. But one of the things that makes these works, at least the works by Miguel Yuste, from my experience, difficult to perform, is that even though it sounds improvised when these return and it's so ornamented, it is written out meticulously as to exactly what to play when. So rhythmically and technique-wise, it's complicated when it returns. You have to really Mm -hmm. study it. When it's performed, it just sounds like you're just improvising on the melody. It's wonderful. But, but Miguel Yuste in particular wanted these to sound exactly as he wanted them to sound. <laughs> so so, um, so uh, it, it sounds beautiful, but to study them, uh, I learned quickly, okay, I'm going to have to spend a little more time in this area here. <laughs> so-
0: So are these advanced studies, they're for the advanced clarinetists or more like intermediate?
1: Yeah, I, I would say so. I think they're upper level, maybe graduate level. It depends on your studio and, and everything, of course. But I, um, I learned these in my doctoral work, and they mm-hmm. were certainly a challenge uh, for me. And when I teach them to students, it's typically my master's students that will tackle them. I see. Um, with an exception here and there, of course. But um, yeah, I think the rhythmic reading is tricky. You, you need to be able to read well. <laughs> Especially rhythmically, and um, and then just understanding the style and somehow turning that so it doesn't sound mechanical, so it doesn't yes. sound like you're just typing out notes. So yeah. Um, yeah, they go. The ensembles is not difficult at all. The piano part and the clarinet part fit together beautifully. Mm-hmm. So that's that's nice. At least it's just getting your part to sound like it's not as hard as it is. Yeah. <laughs> so, isn't that our story of our lives though? Right? <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's par for the course. Yeah, yeah exactly.
0: <laughs> so now you said there was a harmonic there was a harmonic structure.
1: Correct. Yeah. So what, like we said before, this kind of tonal slash modal ambiguity and this, and this large motion by minor thirds or, or, um, augmented seconds. Um, and then, uh, the, the use of parallel thirds happens quite a bit in the accompaniment. And so that's not super unique, but you do, it's, it's often enough that I included it in, in my research because I think it really is kind of an element that, Uh, When we hear the accompaniment and it typically will happen with the dance like rhythms, there'll be parallel Mm. thirds there. So again, not specifically unique to this type of music, but it really does help define. Uh, mm-hmm. At least with the other things um, mixed in, but the biggest thing is just kind of the uh, the chromaticism, and you do have tonal centers. But as I was trying to analyze these pieces, I figured out, at least for myself, they made a lot more sense if I would if I looked at it as tonal areas versus a chord by chord by chord analysis.
0: Oh, that interesting. That got very
1: frustrating for me as I was trying to analyze them because I would find, great, it's this chord, it's this chord, it's this chord. What the heck is going on here? Okay, it came back to this chord. It came back to this chord. So, and I know Miguel Yuste from an interview I got. Um, a, a, I'll make this story short, but one of the um, Carlos Casado is again wonderful network in Spain, and he was able to interview on my behalf. So I have a transcript of that interview, um, and not just my behalf, for all of our behalfs. But mm-hmm. uh, with um, I think Jose Aviles is his name, who knew Miguel Uste was still living at the time when this happened in the early two thousands that the interview happened, but he knew Miguel Yuste. So it was one of his students. So he was able to say the way he composed these works. Miguel Yuste told him, I just write what I hear in my head. I, I know what I hear in my head. I know what I want to put on the page and I just put it down. So I'm not writing according to any tonal rules. I'm writing what I hear. And so when I got that interview, it really helped me to think, okay, it's all right if I'm not analyzing these pieces chord by chord by chord. That was not how they were conceived. They were not as he was hearing them. He's hearing a tonal center, um, and again, back to his frame of reference being mostly the sarsuela and the the folk elements there.
0: That um, is such a beautiful, not robotic way to compose. Yeah, I think. Yeah. That's, and then, but then he was very meticulous. He's like, "No, right. this is what I hear. It <laughs> needs to be
1: played this <laughs> yeah, way. The melody must be exactly this. <laughs> but the <laughs> harmony, you know, yeah, exactly." <laughs> and I, you know, that might be why it really, at least, speaks to me. I think just that, you know, I think it really came from his heart and his frame of reference. I think it really comes through, even all these years later. In the way it's written, that it, it was conceived with such, you know, more with the heart than with the head. Maybe I don't know if that's a fair yeah. statement, but um, but it, when I received the transcript of that interview, it really helped me to reconcile some of the the ambiguity I was finding and my concern that oh, how can I write a dissertation on this if I don't have all the answers, you know. Mm. Yeah.
0: So if we want to hear some of this, because I'm yes. not a clarinetist, so I won't be able to play it. Mm-hmm. But if I were wanting to listen, who are some people that are performing this right now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to tell you the people who, I'm sure there are more recordings out now, but the ones who I still go back to because uh, they still, I just think, are wonderful recordings and they're all professionally available. Pedro Rubio, of course, he has uh, quite a few CDs out with his wife, who is an amazing scholar and musician in her own right, Ana Benavides. She's an amazing pianist who has done um, extensive work on 19th century Spanish music. Um, not just clarinet music, um, but they are an amazing duo. So they're kind of my go-tos as one of the definitives of how to perform this. Um, Carlos Casado has uh, a couple recordings out as well. Enrique Perez Piquet has a whole CD of Miguel Yuste's works and other recordings as well. Uh, he is a principal of the Spanish uh, National Orchestra. He was incredibly helpful. I was able to talk with him in an interview when I went to Spain in tw- 2011, I met with Carlos as well, who also plays with the National Orchestra uh, of Spain. And so I was able to go to rehearsal of the Rite of Spring, which was amazing. And on the break, he came out and got me and he said, come on back, have a coffee with us. So I got to sit with the whole clarinet section, who are just Enrique Perez-Piquet and José Tomás and Carlos as well, who just had so, many, so much to offer. And then there was a surprise guest there, Maximo Pavón. Uh, Maximo, oh my goodness, his, his last name is escaping me. I apologize, but it's Máximo Pavón. He also knew Miguel Yuste. He was, I think, 90 at the time, something like that. And uh, so he was there for me to ask questions of. So just, again, my experiences with this have just, I've been so lucky. And every time I think I've hit a dead end, there we go. But this is where I got a story from Miguel Yuste's daughter from his second marriage, because Enrique perez Piquet knew her it just explained how some of his music was probably lost during the Spanish civil war, just because of the takeover of the city and some of the soldiers taking over certain homes, depending on where they were. Miguel used his house happened to be on a bluff. So it was a prime spot to be taken over. Um, And Mm -hmm. unfortunately he had some music at home and it was, it was lost during this whole, Mm -hmm. um, you know, this whole situation. So, uh, but I wouldn't have known that without this story. So, um, but Enrique's recordings are, are beautiful as well. And there's a, someone who I've I not met, but I love his recordings. And I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing his name. Joan Enrique Luna, or Yuna, I'm not sure how he says it, has some recordings out as well. And, and I hope to meet him at some point. I have not met him, but also beautiful recordings of these works. Um, I know there are more out there now, but those are my go-tos. And you could, you should be able to find any of them on Spotify. They're, I have the actual CDs because that's how old I am, but... <laughs> But I'm sure they're available on Spotify now. I'm sure they're on Spotify, (laughs) (laughs) too. And, you know, one of the sad parts of this story is much of Miguel Justiz's music is out of print and not available. I have a happy ending to this story, but there are two of his works available um, through if you go to Basu Ediciones, and I'll make sure you get the link to that. um, Van Cott is the uh, U.S. distributor for that music. So you can get all those pieces through him if you're in the United States. But there are two of Miguel Eustace's works available. And actually, it's the Union of Publishers that does those two. And those were the two I found. They were the only two I could get a hold of to start. And that's his Solo de Concurso and his Capriccio Pintoresco. The others were in print at one point and are no longer in print, I don't think. However, in 2027, we hit public domain. And so um, I've talked with Pedro and I'm optimistic that these will, will very likely be republished at that at that point, when we hit public domain on those, so oh all of Miguel Yuste's work should be available by then. So that's the good news on that. But there's, if you look at that Basu Ediciones or the Van Cot sites, there are some other composers whose music I think is equally beautiful. Um, Bartolomé Pérez Casas is another one who wrote, wrote quite a few works for clarinet and piano, and they're just fantastic. Antonio Romero, of course, this comes before Miguel Yuste, fantastic and important clarinet um, Spanish clarinet music. Enrique Calvist and Ramon Carnicer, and then Miguel Wirtz, which is not a Spanish last name. That's another interesting story. But W I R T Z have some great works out as well. And that's just a small sample list. If you look on on Pedro's um, website, you'll see others. He also, what is available in the public domain, he has available on his website for free download. Oh. So, there's, so um, what is his website? It's um, basusediciones.com. Uh, but yeah. it's great. He's got some wonderful things available for free download, some clarinet quartets, some duets um, and other things. And Miguel used to re- works not just for clarinet. We've also discovered a few for other instruments uh, in the course of all of this as well. So those are on his website as well. So um, but so there's there's ways you can find out more information for sure. Mm-hmm.
0: So. I love this. I I. I'm like a kid in a candy shop. I love learning about new compo- new to me composers and things that haven't been found. And like, congratulations on all of this work over decades yeah, to course. find this incredible music. And thank you for sharing it and trying sure. to you know, get the word out. So
1: by 2027, we're going to have a whole new generation of students just yes. ready. I'm so excited. And I think it's, you know, I tell my students about this too. I teach a research, a graduate research class here at Northwestern State. And when I was just a student coming into my doctorate, I had no idea this journey awaited me. It was just being curious and being interested and um, just just wondering, just questioning things and not accepting the fact that, well, nothing's written about it. I guess I'm not going to find out, you know, just really figuring out how can I find out next. And I think in many ways it's even easier now than it was for me back in 2000 to to get to this information and really dig Mm -hmm. it out. And I never would have thought I could go to Spain and look in archives and perform and get to know these amazing Spanish clarinetists when I was, you know coming into my doctorate. and I never would have guessed that 11 years later there I was at a rehearsal and meeting all these people I would at the time considered famous. you know, these were clarinet superheroes to me. So um, I think wow. you just never know what awaits you. And if you just stay curious and excited to learn, I mean, really cool things can happen. I'm still doing this research. I still it's fantastic. And I've been able to sit on a dissertation panel with Pedro. And so just all these opportunities are still opening to me just because I'm still curious about this music and performing it and seeing what else I can find and, and asking questions. So I think I would just encourage everyone to, to do that. Just be curious and have fun looking. And um, yeah, it's amazing. I had no idea this journey awaited me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad I did. And thank you so much for sharing it with us. Absolutely. Elena, you are just such a joy. It's so great to see you hey, again. So
1: good to see you too.
0: Yeah. And thank you so much for being here and sharing your amazing story and this wonderful research with us.
1: Of course. Happy to do it.
0: Thank you for joining us today on the Musicians Versus the World podcast in our conversation with Dr. Melena McLaren about her research into Spanish composer Miguel Yuste. If you are interested in learning more about Dr. McLaren's research, or about the Spanish composers mentioned today, I will list all links to more information as well as to the Basus Ediciones in our show notes on our website, frostedlens.com musicians versus the world. In today's episode, you've heard excerpts from Miguel Yuste's Capriccio Pintoresco, Opus 41, and Estudio Melodico, Opus 33. Both were performed by Milena McLaren and shared here with permission. Musicians vs. The World is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. It is hosted and edited by me, Christine Smith, and our producer today is Russ Wilkes. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform, so you don't miss out on any future conversations. You can also find a video version of this interview on our Musicians vs. The World YouTube channel. If you have any questions for us, topics you'd like to hear about, or any helpful advice for other musicians that you'd like to share, Be sure to reach out on Instagram, Twitter, Threads, or Facebook, or send us an email at info at frostedlens.com. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day.